Oh wait, go- no, I forgot. Hold on, it's it's going live. If you're with us, just stay there. You go. I did. Yeah. We're getting YouTube and Face live going here. All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to another Sunday edition of uh, Grace Life Church Live from our living room to your TV or to your iPad or to your phone or to your laptop. Uh, I am grateful for the Hendricks family. Uh, Their living room has become sort of a studio setup for us on Sunday. Uh, We're bare minimal with the equipment now and it seems to be flowing pretty easily. So uh, if you're new with us today, somebody sent you a link to this or maybe you just stumbled on use the word accidentally because everything's for a reason. God's providence directs our lives. But if you just think you stumbled onto this and you're wondering who the heck am I and what the heck are we doing here? Um, my name is Tommy Clayton. I'm the lead pastor of Grace Life Church. And this is week number nine. Is this week nine, guys? I think this is week number nine that we have had to uh, live stream our services because obviously we're there's some restrictions that say we're prohibited from gathering in groups larger than 10. And also because we rent the high school campus at Deltona High School. And so uh, Volusia County Schools are not allowing us to use their campus right now. So um, we've been live streaming our services and I'm grateful for all the people that have tuned in and have watched this. And in some strange way, I think maybe our, our, our week, our, our week, our reach has widened a little bit because it seems like a lot of people are watching these services. And so maybe you're one of those people and you want to join us in person. And if that's the case, welcome. I'm thankful that you're with us today. Um, we did some talking and, you know, right before the sermon, I usually try and do a little bit of interaction with you just to feel human again. I don't know if you have felt uh, some of the same thing that myself and other pastors and other Christian leaders have felt. But, you know, God has given us means of grace. We have prayer. We have the Bible. Uh, but we also have each other. That's one of the greatest and most neglected means of grace, I think, is other people who have spiritual gifts. Uh, and a spiritual gift, if you know this in the Bible, uh, you have a spiritual gift and it's not meant for you. It's meant for somebody else. So when we don't gather together in person or we don't intentionally and strategically reach out to others, we are really depriving them of the blessing. Uh, whatever spiritual gift it is that God gave us. So I don't know if you're like me, maybe the lack of human to human face-to-face contact, you you feel like maybe that spiritual gift has been lessened or depleted a little bit. And so I'm I'm just lagging. Felt like I've been lagging this week, honestly. Uh, And I'm really, really ready uh, when all the things are in place to meet together in person face-to-face again. Nothing else, maybe God's going to show us how critical Maybe those verses like Hebrews 10, it says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves or the assembling of yourselves together, which is the manner of some. Maybe that's going to become a lot more real and personal for us right now. Uh, It certainly has for me. I miss you. And I'm thankful for technology. I'm thankful for Zoom meetings. I'm thankful for cell phones and texting and for live streams. But it is just not the same. It's not the same seeing everybody together face to face. So listen, why don't you do me a favor, wherever you're at, not just for my benefit, but for one another's. Uh, we, we can't have howdy-doody time right now, as they used to call it in the Baptist church that I grew up in, where you stand up and you shake hands and you hug somebody. Uh, some people just threw up in their mouth when I said that because <laughs> of the pandemic. But let's let this be our howdy-doody time. Just give a shout-out to, uh, to all the watchers out there. Uh, where are you watching from? Where are you listening from? How are you doing? Um, how's your week been? And 
Are you guys experiencing the lag that, that they call it? Maybe the fatigue of live stream services and Zoom meetings? Uh, how are you doing? Let's just catch up for a second here before TJ comes uh, to lead us. How are you guys doing this morning? And also, do me a favor. Um, let me know how the... Uh, hopefully, we would want to do that earlier in the service rather than later. Um, not that singing is less important than preaching, TJ. Um, <laughs> it's all important. God cares about all of it. But uh, I'm not getting the YouTube on my phone, so maybe you're not getting it where you're at either. We have a lot of comments. A lot of people. Are okay. All right. It's probably just my phone then. It says 16 people are waiting on this. Hmm. So everybody doing good out there? Good morning, darling and Jesse. All right. Good morning, Araceli and Prin. Good to hear from you guys. Good to see y'all out there. Cole. Oh, here we are. Thank you. Jeff Eckert is watching. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff from Grace Life Beachside. Man, you're supposed to be preaching. You better get off here. <laughs> you're Sam. Mark and Debbie, the Brower family, George Harris, the Wynn family, the Roth family. Lily and Russell. Sadie. Um, and Denny. My family, Joe, Aaliyah. Okay, you guys are all there, and I know I'm missing some people. But <laughs> Melissa. Melissa, Wamplers. good to see you and hear from you guys. The Wamplers. The Wampler family. So you guys are, it's coming through clear. I'll take it. You can see me. You can hear me. That's wonderful. I bet you guys, some of you are ready to get back to work. Some of you are happy that you're not going back to work yet, as you know. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit later. The governor has begun to lift some of the more strict restrictions on gathering. The beaches are going to open. Uh, I don't think beauty parlors are opening yet or theaters or gyms, but uh, restaurants up to a certain capacity. So that means a lot of different things for a lot of you. Some of you are still really, really struggling with the financial hardship. And I've been praying for you. My heart goes out to you. And I'm thankful for those of you that are that are supporting your church, your giving, and it hurts. And I know that. I feel that. And I'm thankful that that's a means of grace that God has given us. Nielsen Construction, good to see you. Eckman family. I think I already said hi to the Brower family and, and many others. Malcolms. Um, the Malcolms, good to, good to hear from you this morning. Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we just pause for a minute and pray and ask for God to come and meet with us and, and bless our time together in just a, a really unique way that we're going to leave this live stream service changed and, and receive more of God's grace and God's peace than when we came here. And he's going to surprise us today. That's what I always pray, that God shows up and surprises us, not because we didn't expect him to show up, but because Ephesians 3.20, he, he's going to do more than we could ever ask or, or expect or think. So let's pray. And uh, the only announcement I have for this week is that I believe the, the men knowing God are going to meet on Tuesday night, and you'll get a link sent to you, Brent Carnathan, is going to lead us again in a, in a time of prayer and greeting and just fellowship. Um, and then community groups are back on this week. And look, if you are feeling that loss of connection, you at least have that. If you have an internet connection at your house or know somebody that does, there's no reason why you can't get in on a community group. You need it, especially right now. So I would encourage you uh, to find a group uh, that you can meet with. So let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to, to gather, even if it's through just digital technology and sing songs of praise, pray, to catch up, to greet one another, 
And uh, just in a few moments to look at your word and to ask you to, to help us, Lord, to strengthen us, to build us up, to give us perseverance, to give us more grace, to help us experience more of your peace so that we can go out in the world and leverage ourselves for your kingdom and be good witnesses, to be the, uh, the insiders who exist for the outsiders. And pray for our time of worship now as TJ comes to lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, TJ, your phone's up here. You want it? Nope. Nope. All right. Let's do my best. Just want to say good morning, guys. Um, how much I miss everyone. Um, the live stream is definitely not the same as him. We give her a little high five, a handshake, and a hug. Um, and uh, definitely looking forward to when we are able to worship as a congregation and a person. But...
All right, thank you, TJ. And you guys can see, I don't know if you can see it over here, we have a communion that we're going to celebrate today at the close of the service. So we sent out some, hopefully some helpful guidelines for you guys that are going to do this at home. So just in case the, uh, the live feed interrupts or gets shut down, you'll have everything that you need so that you can celebrate communion in your home. And that's really what it would have been like in the New Testament and going all the way back to the original communion, which was Passover. People hunkered down in Egypt and celebrated uh, the angel of destruction passing over them because of the blood of the lamb smeared on their doorpost. So we'll get to that in a little bit. There's one announcement that I forgot, and I don't think he would mind me sharing this with you. All the more opportunities for people to pray. John Gordon is a member of our worship team, and uh, he just called me yesterday and let me know that his dad, who lives up in Virginia, had had a, a heart attack and uh, was on a ventilator. And I know that John would appreciate, the family would appreciate your prayers um, for his dad, Al. So, John, we love you. We love your family. And we are praying for you. In fact, I want to stop and just pray for Al and for the family right now. And I'll also pray for our time together. Lord, you are a God who is a very present help in time of trouble. And you delight in the prayers of your people. And every prayer is either a form of thank you or a form of help. And so we cry out to you, Lord. We, we say thank you for the life that, that you give all of us, Lord. And it's, it's a gift. And so often we presume on it and we take it for granted. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you would be gracious to the, to the Lord family, that you would, would heal Al of his condition, Lord. I pray his body would respond to the medication that he's on, the anti-seizure medication. I know he's been unconscious since this happened. He's on the ventilator. And I pray, Lord you bring healing touches body you are the mighty and the great physician with unlimited power and might stretch out your arm show your power show your grace to your people lord in the meantime comfort that family give them the peace of god that surpasses understanding lord and just help them to wait expectantly and and to trust you during this time lord and surround them with the love and prayers of your people even now this morning and be with us as we come to your word we need your power. We need your Holy Spirit to come and to enlighten us, to open our, our eyes, to see the beauty of Jesus, to, to hear uh, the loveliness of the gospel message, Lord, and to experience the the, uh, the power of it in our heart and in our lives. And so I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text this morning is going to be the shortest passage that I've ever preached on, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean it would be the shortest sermon that you've ever heard. So, <laughs> but it will be a shorter message, I think, because we have communion today. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn your Bible or you can turn your Bible on. If, if you're, uh, you have a smartphone or an iPad or something like that, we're going to be in Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, uh, so the New Testament goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. So about six or seven or eight books in. You're going to find the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul wrote this book, and we're going to be in chapter 1 and just camp in one verse. We may bounce around a little bit, uh, but that's what my intention is, to stay in one verse. So if you're there, chapter 1, and I'm just going to read the first two verses, and we're going to stop right there, okay? First two verses. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints 
who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me read that last verse again, just to plant it deeply in your mind. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it appears that the world is ready to come out of lockdown. Floridians are, at least. I think it's really hard to live in the Sunshine State and uh, and be under self-quarantine. It doesn't come easy for us, does it? No. Uh, but things are moving. In fact, I told my wife yesterday, I was out and about, and I said, I have never seen this much traffic on a Saturday in the land, not even before the lockdown. I've never seen it that busy. I think people are starting to feel confidence again and they start to feel the freedom as the government starts to lift some restrictions. People are out and about and then Sarah went to Publix and she told me, she said, since this started, I have not seen more people wearing masks than I have at Publix today. So you got both of those factors in this equation. People are feeling more freedom than they ever have and people are still more afraid than they've ever been. And those are, those can be like a, a, a toxic, you've got restlessness. People are out the bath, they're going to the beaches, they're going to the parks, they're ready to get back to whatever normal is. Hopefully it's a better than normal uh, from our past. So you've got restlessness and you've also got fear. Restlessness and fear. Those are two really dangerous ingredients. It's kind of like bleach and pretty much anything else that you ever mix with bleach is not a good idea. If you're out there and you're trying to clean something, especially right now, and you're using bleach, just don't mix it with anything. If you mix it with vinegar, it could kill you. If you mix it with anything, it could hurt you. Well, that's the same thing with restlessness and fearfulness. They don't go well together ever. Um, so the world is going to need a lot of help and is going to have to think very strategically and carefully about how do we navigate opening things back up. And not just the world, also the church. That's what I'm thinking of today. Uh, a, a reopening of some kind seems inevitable for everybody, whether it's a small business, whether it's schools eventually, or whether it's church, um, whether it's going to be in phases or in stages or whatever. And we're going to need a lot of help. All of us are. We don't live on an island. And the decisions that we make, personal decisions, they impact and they affect other people. Um, I read a, a few articles this week that, that talk about this reopening. And uh, a seminary president named Charles Smith, he wrote this in an article last week. Check this out. He starts out this way. Prediction. Prediction. One of the most challenging aspects of COVID-19 recovery will be disagreements over acceptable and social norms between friends and family. That's interesting to me. <laughs> what's going to be, his prediction is, what's, what's going to be next for everybody? It's going to be conflict because people are not going to be able to agree about how, how should this navigation of reopening happen? Should we be like extra cautious or should we throw caution to the wind and say it's over? Let's just move forward, full speed ahead. Another writer said this. He said, I believe one of the ways that the enemy will seek to divide our ranks within the church is by tempting us to use our opinions against each other. If the devil has his way, we'll be throwing stones of accusations from all sides, calling the cautious people soft, labeling the optimist of being reckless. More than that, the enemy especially loves when we cement ourselves in political corners, adding opinionated fuel 
to the already tumultuous fire conflict. Things can get ugly very quickly. And you know that. You've seen that. If you're on social media at all, if you're not, don't don't bother adding that <laughs> burden to your life. But if you're on there already, um, this is what you've probably seen. There's a trending hashtag right now, especially on Twitter. And the hashtag is stay home. And the other one is end the lockdown. So you've got this stay at home, don't go out, uh, don't risk getting infected or don't risk spreading infection. And then you've got the other one, end the lockdown. This is ridiculous. It's enough already. Come on, who are we kidding? The dangerous past. So you got those two opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and this, this disagreement that a lot of people are having, look, Christians aren't immune from that. It's so challenging because the dividing issues are very personal to people. They're very personal. And I'll give you an example. There's a sweet uh, lady in our church named Cindy Gilman. Cindy, if you're out there watching, we love you. Cindy lost her mother, who was up north, and got admitted to a hospital with, with respiratory complications, and she lost her mom to COVID-19. So how would somebody who's lost a loved one feel about that hashtag? In the lockdown, this is ridiculous. My life is being inconvenienced. Let's just go back out there. How would somebody like her be tempted to feel about that? It's very personal to all of us. Or what if you have a small business and you can't pay your employees right now and you can't pay your mortgage, you can't pay your rent? You're probably on the other side of the spectrum. It's like, come on already, let's get back to work. These are deeply, deeply dividing and deeply personal issues, right? Or if you have a loved one that's on the front line of the heroic efforts of like an ER doctor or a nurse, or, or somebody like that. It's deeply personal to you. Uh, or you're losing your savings. I mean, there's a lot of things that come into play. Satan loves this. Satan loves to divide and conquer. That's what he's always been doing. He's going to take this as an occasion to press that into the church. We're not immune to it. Um, I read an article the other day from a New York pastor who planted a church in New York City a long time ago. And at the, the boom of his church, 9-11 happened. This church planted his, this pastor planted his church right smack dab in the middle of Manhattan. He was reflecting in this pandemic, he was reflecting on what it was like post 9-11 in Manhattan. And he said he had never seen New York, New York people more united. Like before in the subway, nobody talked to anybody. But now you would come up out of the subway and you would hug a stranger. You would hug them and you'd say, did you lose somebody? And he said everybody united and they were all uh, united in this purpose to rebuild and to unite and to strengthen one another. And this is the exact opposite. Now you see a stranger and you're suspicious. Do they have it? They're not wearing a mask. Why are they out in public? Is this, is this a necessary trip that they're making? Um, so see, before there was, there was unity and now there, it's almost as if there is suspicion. Um, so back then when 9-11 happened, there was a common enemy, right? terrorists did this and they turned airplanes into missiles and we know who the enemy is and we know who we have to fight but now who's the common enemy right now well common sense will tell you well it's a germ right but i don't know is that really what people think here's some things i wrote down the common enemy is this germ that anyone can be carrying oh no way no way no it's the government official who won't let me reopen my salon no no way it's the dad who refused to wear a mask at Publix. No, no way. It's the lady who bought two packages of toilet paper, four packs, right? And is hoarding. No, it's the teenagers who went on spring break anyway when they were warned not to. Or it's the restaurant that ignored social distance guidelines. Or it's the Chinese government who was deceptive 
and downplay the, the severity of this COVID-19. Who is the enemy, right? Do you see the difference and do you see the complications? So that's why you get this hashtag stay at home or hashtag in the lockdown. You know, I went to seminary and I took a lot of exams, a lot of exams, more than I ever care to remember. And I can't ever remember a question on one of those exams, which was for the purpose to prepare pastors like me to, to like unleash us on the world to, to, to shepherd God's people and administer the gospel. I don't ever remember an exam question being this. How do you reopen your church and reassimilate after a pandemic, lockdown, stay-at-home, government-issued quarantine? <laughs> Had that question been on the exam, the answer might have been multiple choice, and it would either be full throttle. Throttle is just like a foreign term for gas pedal. Okay? Full speed ahead, so full throttle, half throttle, or no throttle. What's the answer? Everybody's got an opinion. And can I just be really honest with you? It's like one person said to me a long time ago, opinions are like armpits. We all have them and they all stink, right? <laughs> Nobody wants you to share your opinion unless, you know, they ask you to invite you. So what's the right answer? Full speed ahead, half speed ahead, no speed ahead. None of those. None of those. It's a trick question. Here's the answer. Grace and peace. <laughs> grace. How do we move forward from here? We are going to need a whole lot of grace and peace. And I'm thankful that we have a whole lot of it. Uh, God offers us a whole bunch of it. And this is just one of the many places we see in Ephesians chapter one, uh, verse two here. Now I have a confession to make, and maybe you'll share this if you're honest. Um, the verse we're focusing on today, I, here I am, I'm a pastor. I believe the authority of the Bible, the veracity of the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible, the infallibility of the Bible. And I gotta be honest, I've read this phrase, not just here in Ephesians, but in multiple other places in the letters, the epistles of the New Testament. And I've kind of considered it a throwaway phrase, like religious formality. This is just your typical apostolic greeting, salutation. Howdy, folks. How you doing? Now let's get to the good stuff, the doctrine, right? Um, but I should have known better. <laughs> Number one, the Bible says that uh, every word is profitable. Every single word is under the direction and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's no... There's no waste of words here. In fact, the Apostle John, you may remember this. He said all the deeds that Jesus ever did were recorded and put into books. The whole world couldn't contain them. So in other words, the writers of the New Testament and the Holy Spirit was very selective on what they included. So there's nothing wasteful. Every word, every conjunction, just like the Old Testament, every jot and tittle, just like in the New Testament, every preposition, every day. <laughs> Uh, D-E, that's a conjunction, not D-A-Y. All of those are important. And so this is not a throwaway phrase at all. In fact, uh, as one person said, this is the Apostle Paul trying his best to deeply form and shape the people of God. When he's about to unleash some truth on you, two of the words he wants to come to your mind when you think of God are this, grace and peace. Are those the words that come to your mind? When you think of God, are you fundamentally thinking about grace, which is just favor, unmerited favor and kindness, and peace, which is tranquility and human flourishing and well-being? Or are you thinking of other stuff like here we go again, work, or God's angry, God's disappointed, sweat, earnest? Are those the words you use? The Apostle Paul is trying to shape up. This, this is not religious formality at all. So uh, as I've considered uh, these, these words this week, this has been anything but just a throwaway passage. This is critical. This is key. This is essential. This is useful. Um, and this is often neglected and it's often counterfeited, which is what Satan does in anything that's useful, right? 
Uh, Satan only counterfeits the good stuff. That's why money gets counterfeited. Um, so what are grace and peace? Before we jump in our outline, it's a short outline today. Let's just make sure we're all using the same dictionary, okay? So what are we talking about when we say grace and peace? Or more importantly, what's the Apostle Paul talking about when he says grace and peace? Well, grace is, it's an unreasonably good response, Wendy Alsup writes in her study on Ephesians. It's an unreasonably good response. What do I mean? Well, it's a response to sin. It's a response to weakness. It's a response to failure. It's God's response, and it's unreasonably good because what should God's response have been? What could God's response have been? It could have been judgment. When we're talking about grace, we are talking about something that is unearned, that is unmerited, that you didn't work for. Grace is not wages earned. Uh, grace is kindness unearned. Okay, It's free. You didn't do anything to deserve this at all. In fact, this is the opposite of what you deserve. Grace is. That's why it's unreasonably good. What we do deserve is God's wrath. What we do deserve is judgment. That's what we've earned. The Bible says for the wages of sin's death. Wages is you're working for a wage. If you work for something and your employer gives you a paycheck, you don't thank him. You say it's about time. <laughs> you know, this is what you owe me. I work for this. I've earned this. The grace you don't earn, you don't work for. It's a free gift from God. That's why it's unreasonably good, and it's the opposite of what we should expect. What we earn or what we expect is judgment, but grace is kindness. It's God's kindness to us, and it's a free gift, and that's why it's so amazing. Because, look, we carry around a lot of guilt. We carry around a lot of condemnation. We are right, we're like a tomato that you can just softly squeeze, and you know, man, this thing's about to explode. It's so ripe. It's the same with us. We're ripe for judgment, but instead of that, God gives us grace. He gives us grace. And it flows from God, just like gravity, you know. It's just like water flows over Niagara Falls, and that's a great analogy because there's so much water there. It's endless, and it can't do anything but fall downwards. It's the same with God's grace. God is filled with grace, and so there's an abundant supply of it, and it flows downhill. That's why we have to get low to receive it. God gives grace to the humble, right? Not to the proud, not to the arrogant, not to those who position and posture themselves. He gives grace to the humble. Um, so that's what grace is. Now, I want to make a distinction here. Put your thinking hat on. The, the description that I've just given you is a status. It's a status, uh, really. Uh, it's, it's a transaction that, uh, that, that God is giving to us. It's, we get his grace free, right? And, and the new status that we enjoy is peace with God. That's why it's grace and peace. We receive God's grace. It's unmerited. It's unearned. It comes from him directly to us, and then we enjoy peace with God. Instead of being his enemies, we are at peace with him. We're his friends. We're adopted into his family, and, and we belong. We've been justified. So that's that's a, an unconditional transaction that God makes with us that leads to this new status, peace with God. Okay, But that's not what Paul is talking about here. All of this comes from that, but this grace and this piece is a little bit different, and I, and I just want to spend a little bit of time getting into that. But first, let me, let me read this. This is from Gordon Fee, his commentary. He says, The sum total of all God's activity toward his human creatures is found in the word grace. And the sum total of those benefits as they are experienced by the recipients of God's grace is found in the word peace. Peace means well-being, wholeness, and welfare. So we... When we 
experience this grace of God, uh, what flows out of that experience is, is peace. And that's important. Peace is important. Wendy Alsup writes this. She says, peace is exemption from the rage and the havoc of war. Peace comes between individuals. It means harmony, concord, concord, excuse me, security, safety, prosperity, felicity, the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatever sort that is. So peace is like the opposite of restlessness. It's the opposite of strife. It's the opposite of uncertainty. It's the opposite of like uh, raging conflict, right? And we know that conflict can be an opportunity to glorify God and it can also kill joy. It can also crush relationships. So uh, we have, we experience this free grace from God and then we enjoy this new status with God, peace. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. What he's talking about comes from that, okay? Because we have peace with God, that means we also experience the peace of God. And Paul is wanting us to enjoy that peace. Paul is wanting us to enjoy more of this grace that God has. You know, we, we enjoy saving grace that's so amazing, and then we continue to experience that grace. God has more grace to pour upon us. We're already saved, um, but there's more of the enjoyment of that grace to experience. Does that make sense? I can say it like this. I have children. Uh, I have a son. His name's Jackson. Hopefully he's watching right now, Jackson. Jackson, you are my son. There's nothing that you could ever do to not be my son. You're stuck with me, buddy. You're in the family. I'm your dad and you're, and you're my buddy. You're my son. Now, can my son Jackson enjoy more of his status with me? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, hopefully as a 10-year-old, he has just begun to tap into the wonders and the glories of what it means to be Tommy Douglas Clayton's son, right? Uh, he, can, he can stick where he's at and never grow in his relationship to me, but he's still going to be my son. Or he can really press down deep and say, Dad, I want everything. I want all there is with being your son. Lavish it upon me. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, okay? And not just grace, but peace. So, this is point number one, if you're following an outline here, and I'm, I hope I'm making sense today. Um, point number one, grace and peace. We need more of them. That's point number one. We need more of them. We need it early and we need it often. In fact, check this out. The Apostle Paul that we know of, he wrote 13 letters. We call them epistles. That's the technical word. He wrote 13 letters or books in the New Testament. 13. Man, that's some heavy hitting. 13 books. Do you want to know how many times in those 13 letters that the Apostle Paul opens up in the same exact way? I mean, the identical phrase in Greek. Um, he says, grace to you from God our Father. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know how many times he says that out of 13 letters? Guess. 13. That's right. 13 times. <laughs> I mean, think of all the heavy-hitting events in the New Testament or the Old Testament. David and Goliath. You know how many times you get that story? One time. Just once. Uh, Joshua and the Amalekites. One time. I mean, fill in the blank there. You know how many times this phrase is mentioned? 13 times. He could have said it once and that would have been enough. Twice would have been, okay, you got my attention. 13 times. And not only does Paul begin his letters this way, he usually ends them. And just so you can see, I'm not making this stuff up. Check out the way he ends Ephesians after six chapters of rich, deep, profound theology. This is the way he ends this letter. 
Verse 23 of chapter 6. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love and trouble. But you see in the beginning, he says grace and peace to you. And when you end, he says grace and peace, st- grace and peace stay with you. You need it and you need to take it with you. Okay, so that's the first point is you and I need more of this. We, we didn't get enough the first dose. We're saved. That, that is positional. We're saved. We belong to God. We're in his family. Nothing can ever threaten that. Nothing can ever change that. Nothing can ever overturn that. Thank God we are secure. We have assurance. And at the same time, Paul is saying, but listen, you need more of God's grace. Not his saving grace. You have that. This is his sustaining grace. This is his equipping grace. This is his uh, preserving and protecting grace. Uh, that along with it comes peace. You and I need more of that. He assumes that. Paul didn't write this letter and say, hey, uh, for those of you that may think you need more, I have more. He says, no, this is all of you. This is all of us. Unless you think you have everything there is to have. No, that's ridiculous. You don't have. You couldn't have. That's like saying you go and take a drink out of the ocean, which you shouldn't. It's salt water. You could hallucinate. <laughs> um when there's like seven oceans you could drink of and never get to the bottom. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Uh, we need this early. It's, it's, it's front-loaded every epistle. This is like the first thing. Paul says, you're not even going to be able to profit from what I'm about to write unless you have this from the get-go. This is like prepping you. This is equipping you. Um, you're not going to go anywhere without this. I, you know, a lot of the time when I left, my mother uh, is an amazing lady. Thank God for you, Mom. I know you're watching, too. And my mom, a lot of the times when I have to work, even when I was old enough to drive, she made me lunch. She didn't spoil me. She helped me grow, right? And I would be leaving, and she would say, Son, don't forget your lunch, because I'm a very forgetful person, right? Um, so this is not the Apostle Paul saying, don't forget your lunch. It is. It is. He's saying that. This is the Apostle Paul saying, don't forget your keys, because if you don't have this, you ain't going nowhere. You're not getting anywhere. It's, it's the Apostle Paul saying, don't forget your keys. Don't forget to fill up with gas. Don't forget your lunch. This is like the warp and woof, like the beginning and the end of the Christian life. You're not going anywhere without this, okay? And this is also, how can I explain this? Grace and peace, they go together. They're not, they're different, but they're not different. This is not like apples. Grace is apples and, and peace is oranges, no, this is grace is apples and peace is apple juice. You don't get the one without the other. Grace will lead you to peace. There's, if you really want the peace of God, there is only one way for I'm just shooting you as straight as I can. There's only one way you and I are ever going to experience and enjoy uh, peace with God. Um, and that is through the grace of God. There's no other way to do it. There's no other way you can get to it. There's, this is like one direction. It's one-way traffic. It's like my little toddler when we go to the Chick-fil-A playground. I don't know why. Back when you could go to the Chick-fil-A playground, he wants to walk up that slide when there's like 50 little kids in there going down uh, who have left their shoes on because they broke the rules. And there's like 50 big kids going down the slide. And my little toddler uh, is trying to climb up this slide and he's getting pummeled by people. That's not, there's only one way to get the peace of God. And it's you got to go with grace. You got to go with grace. It's, here's another illustration because we all need illustrations, right? I live off of Orange Camp Road in Deland, Florida. And if you're going to get to my house by car, you're going to have to get on Orange Camp Road or you're not going to get there. You're going to have to go through a yard and over through a brick wall. 
there's no way you can get to my house in a car unless you go on Orange County Drive. And the same is true of the peace of God. Everybody wants peace. We all want to enjoy it. And there's all these counterfeits and artificial and plastic and non, you know, this synthetic stuff out there. If you really want the peace from God and with God, you gotta you gotta go through the grace of God. So these things are together. They're inextricably linked. One is like a, an aroma. You know, the grace of God is like perfume. And when you break it like that alabaster flask in the New Testament, this aroma like fills the room. That's the peace, you know? It's the scent that's inescapably uh, attached to the cologne or the perfume. And, you know, this is for free, but the opposite is true. If you are a Christian who just conflict, God help you if you are a Christian who enjoys conflict. God help you. God have mercy on your soul. I mean, what... Conflict is an inescapable part of life. But for the people that are drawn to that and enjoy that and get some satisfaction out of that, God help you. But I will say this, you know, just like peace is the scent that's attached to grace, um, the opposite is true, too. If you're a person who's not fully enjoying the grace of God, and so there's no peace that's attached to you, you are a repugnant, repugnant odor, right? Haven't, you, haven't we all met somebody like that? They, that the stench follows us around. There was a, a kid that I played football with in high school, and his name was Dobber. And uh, there was a coach, there was a show back then called Coach, and there was a kid with long, long blonde hair named Dobber, uh, and this guy looked just like him. And, you know, when you play football, you have to wear an undershirt uh, over your shoulder pads and under your jersey, or you get rubbed raw. And so we all had undershirts, and common sense would tell you, take that shirt home and wash it every night, because it is like grossly disgusting, yellow stains, disgusting. I don't know why, man. This guy, Dauber, um, he had the means to do it. He wasn't like impoverished. Every single day, he left his undershirt hanging in the locker room, um, and the whole locker room like stunk to high heaven. And beyond that, this kid never took a bath. And every time that I would see Dauber walking down the hall at my high school, it wouldn't matter how close he was. It was like this. <laughs> maybe it's a defense mechanism that kicks in. I could see him 100 feet down the hall, and I would smell him, and I would turn around and go the other way, right? And that's what this grace and peace that Paul is talking about. If you don't have this, if you don't have this, it just accompanies your life. It's, 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 it becomes obvious. It's like, man, what's wrong? Have you ever known somebody like that? What's wrong with this Christian? They're not receiving ongoing this, this uh, continual provision from God that he wants to just lavish upon us. This is like oxygen for your lungs. This is like blood to the organs in your body. This is like gas to your car. We need this. You need it often. You need it early. You need it at the beginning. You need it at the end. And that's why Paul is always praying for us to get it. He's always writing theology and gospel doctrine for us to receive it. Uh, these are the things that you and I need. This is not religious formality. And you know, the, the apostle Paul is not the only one that, that wrote this epistles this way. Uh, the apostle John wrote the same way. And Peter, the apostle Peter, he wrote this. He said, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And that's a really powerful verb in Greek. And it means to increase. It means to increase, meaning you and I need more grace and peace. We need more of it. There's never enough that we have. You should never be satisfied with where you're at uh, with the grace and peace of God. God always has more to lavish upon you. And we especially need it. This is not just a COVID-19 sermon. We're going to especially all need a lot of grace and peace right now as things begin to reopen, even as our church begins to make plans for some type of regathering in person and reopening. We're going to need a lot of that. So 
Paul assumes the verb grace to you. Peter um, puts in the verb supplies multiply. May the grace of God increase to you. You know, we're never static. We're never static. We're always ebbing. We're always flowing. Listen, one moment, you can feel like you are uh, on a safe ship, just in port, going into a harbor of peace. And then five minutes later, you can get a phone call that you feel like you're storm tossing in, right? We ebb and flow. We always need more of this grace and this peace. And I can't help but think of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Are you guys familiar with that hymn? I don't want to sing it to you, but the lyrics are, uh, when peace like a river attends my soul, uh, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Uh, and that song, you may not know this, it was written by a man who lost three of his daughters at sea to a shipwreck. And his wife was the only survivor. And much later, he had to leave Chicago and he had to, to cross the Atlantic on a ship. And when he got to the place where he had lost his, his daughters, some of the most precious lives to him. He wrote that hymn right there. Um, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attends my soul. How, how, did, how could you, losing your children like that, how in the world could you experience peace because of the grace of God, because of your status with God? You're at peace with God, and therefore it is well with me. It is well. God is just pouring out and lavishing out peace to you. John Piper writes this. He says, real life in a fallen world is a river. You go upstream with growth or you go downstream. There is no standing still. Your anchor is not straight down. It's always slanted and you're always getting pulled in one direction or the other. And what God and I want you and I to know is that grace and peace always go together. We always are in drastic need of them. And listen, God delights. Do you know nothing delights the heart of God more than when you and I come to him in desperation and humility and brokenness, and we beg him to give us more. Like, Lord, would you please give me more grace? Because I sure need it. And I'm feeling my need right now. I'm experiencing my need. You know, you will never, ever get roadblocked or stiff-armed from God. In fact, God gets more joy in providing you and I more grace and more peace than when he provides us with anything else. Uh, he's not put off by us. I know I say this a lot, guys, but we forget this so often. We need to be reminded. You are not off-putting to God. You don't bother him. You don't annoy him. You don't get all his nerves. He said in Hebrews 12, too, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. God wants you to have all these good gifts that he's prepared for you. You know, Dane Orland wrote a book. I think I, I think I quoted from it last week, but I just want to read a section of it again to you. Um, he made this point. This is what he said. He's quoting from an old Puritan work that Thomas Goodwin wrote called The Heart of Christ. And, and he quotes Thomas Goodwin, uh, and then he illustrates what he means. So bear with me, okay? This is what Thomas Goodwin wrote. Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by. Now, just hit the pause button here. This is, this is a pretty staggering comment to make. Jesus Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by, how would you fill in the blank? This is how he fills in the blank. They are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy and pardoning, relieving, and comforting his people here on earth. There is nothing that God more delights in than in showing you and me more grace, uh, more love, more mercy, more peace. 
And then Daniel Orland knows that it's hard for the human mind and the human heart to receive this, so he gives a great illustration. I just want to read it to you. He says, imagine that there is a compassionate doctor who has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe who has been afflicted with a contagious disease. Kind of fitting right now, right? He has had his medical equipment flown in, this wealthy doctor. He has correctly diagnosed the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and available. This doctor is independently wealthy. He has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted tribe refuse. They refuse. They don't want it. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. How would that doctor feel? Probably very sad, right? But finally, a few brave men step forward and they receive the care that this doctor is freely providing and offering. What does this doctor feel? <laughs> well, you know the answer. It's joy. His joy increases to the degree <clears throat> that the sick are coming to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason that he came. How much more if the disease are not strangers, but his own family. So he's talking about this is a post-salvation experience for you and I to continually go back to the doctor, God, who, who delights to provide us with the grace and the peace we need. And, and, and Dana Orland's right. We don't impoverish God. We don't deplete God. We don't annoy God. His grace supply is unlimited. It's just sitting up there. He's got this storehouse, this treasure of grace and peace that he wants to lavish upon his people. And he wants us to ask. He gets glory when we ask. And there's a posture that we take when we ask. And it's humility. That's what both James chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5 says. It says God gives grace to who? To the humble. God gives grace to the humble. In fact, James says he gives more grace. He's got more grace and more grace and more grace to give. So if you are a Christian today, or even if you're not a Christian, you just desperately feel your need, your inadequacies, your weaknesses, your flaws, your failures, your sins. I want to tell you right now, God is in heaven and he is waiting. He is waiting with expectation and with delight for you to come and beg him. You know, not grovel at his feet. That's not what he's after. He wants you to come and acknowledge your need. When your need meets God's provision, Man, fireworks, fireworks happen, right? Powerful things take place. But when you hold back, when you lurk in the shadows, when you're afraid, when you're fearful, when you're reluctant, when you're doubting, nothing is going to happen. You're believing the lie that you're off-putting to God. And don't believe that for a minute. God has a storehouse of things to give you. And that's what you see all through the Bible, really. So... Um, that's what grace and peace are all about. It's about this... It's about enjoying your status. You already had this peace with God, and now God wants you to have the peace of God to go with you uh, with whatever conflicts or difficulties or challenges that you are facing in the world. It's that Old Testament idea of shalom, peace. It means complete human flourishing, physically, spiritually, socially, vocationally, in every different field and compartment. Uh, God intends for you to enjoy more of him. That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to say here. That's what he's trying to say. Uh, Linsky, one of my favorite writers, he says, grace is fundamental. Peace is the result. This order is never reversed. It's never, re uh, it's never re reversed. So that's point number one, is that you and I need more grace. We need more peace. We need it often. We need it early. It's the beginning. It's the end. It's the middle, okay? Um, and here is point number two. 
Point number two is that you and I are intended to extend this, right? We are agents of change. We, we don't just pour this to ourselves. God intends for us to spread it. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing in all of his letters. You know, Paul is receiving revelation from God, and he is transferring that to the people of God. He's saying, look, you're going to need grace and peace so that you get this theology, this doctrine, this truth from God that I'm going to send you. And don't hoard it up, okay, like people are doing toilet paper right now. Go and share it with the world and with a church that is desperately in need. Because, listen, you already know. I'm going to tell you something that you already know. Grace is a very powerful thing. And peace, are, grace and peace together, it's like a knockout one-two combo. Not to destroy people, but to help people. Uh, and the opposite is true, too. If you withhold grace, if you're a person, if you're not a peacemaker, but you're a strife maker, oh, my goodness, man, uh, may your tribe diminish and be depleted. <laughs> may God do a work in your heart, because that's what the world needs right now more than ever. People are at each other's throat. Everyone has this angry, violent opinion. Uh, we don't need that. Goodness, we don't need that right now. We need people to be gracious. We need people to be kind. And I'm not talking about just being polite. This, this theology goes deeper than that. It is knowing my status with God through Christ is fixed forever. I, I'm a child of God. I belong to him. So what have I got to worry about? I don't have anything to fear. I don't have anything to lose. I don't have anything to prove. I don't have anything to hide. That can only come, that grace and that peace can only come through your status. But man, you are so equipped if that's you and you're getting more and more of God's grace to go out into the world, leverage your life, make a difference, and to be a productive and a contributing member of society and of God's church to serve and to help people, right? Um, so you experience the grace and you enjoy the peace. That's what this is really all about. Um, and what I'm trying to say here is that this is not a cul-de-sac. It's not the Dead Sea. You don't just receive all this and then just lay in this ocean of grace and peace. No, you take it, you carry it. Um, a little bit later in the same epistle, there's a verse that every parent, every Christian parent probably at one point is quoted to their child. It says this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may impart, what? Grace to those who hear. Now, man, I don't know of anything more powerful. And, and I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that maybe are more powerful, but for this sermon, okay? <laughs> this is so powerful. Do you know that you have the potential to impart, not saving grace. I can't save anybody. You can't save anybody. But man, can you be an agent of hope and change in somebody's life, okay? You have this power that God gave you to impart or to give grace to somebody who is listening to you. And that also means that the opposite is true. You can absolutely crush somebody. You have this potential with this thing called words. Uh, you know, there's this ongoing debate with weapons. Who is permitted? Who is able to carry and brandish a weapon? Uh, you have to get a license. You have to do this two-week wait. But listen, can I submit to you that there is something much more powerful um, than a gun? And, you know, that, that debate is for another time. But do you know words are powerful? Words are more powerful. I know that people say sticks and stones can't break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And man, that's a lie straight out of hell. Words are the most powerfully shaping, forming things in the universe. In fact, Proverbs 18.21 said the power of life and death lie in the tongue. The power of life. That's a godlike power that if you have a mouth or if you can write, if somebody cut your tongue out like they did watching the knee, the Christian, the Chinese Christian, and you can still have that power by writing. And 
man, how we misuse that so often. We don't just give thought to what we're saying, especially when there's children involved. Um, I have a crazy illustration that I, I hope you're not put off by this, but there's a book that I read about every three years by Stephen King. So hang on, don't, don't clock out just yet, okay? Stephen King, whatever you may think of the content of his books, he is an incredible writer. He understands the craft of writing because he spent his whole life perfecting it or practicing it. And he wrote a book on writing that's called, uh, on writing, I think it's called uh, A Memoir of the Craft. Writing, A Memoir of the Craft by Stephen King. And he weaves his personal biography from an, from his earliest childhood memories to the present when he almost got killed because he got hit by a bus. And it's just really well done. It's Stephen King, so it's it's not rated, you know, it's not PG. <laughs> um, but it's there's some helpful stuff in there. And I was just reading through it again this year. I was struck by a memory that Stephen King had of some of the first times he ever wrote anything. And, and this will just tell you how powerful your words are. You may not know this about Stephen King, but his dad walked out on his whole family when he was two years old, and his mother got cancer, and she was dying, okay? So before you judge somebody, always walk in their shoes. And a lot of people are like, Stephen King, what a God. He writes garbage, and it's polluted and filthy. A lot of it is. Most of it is. But you know, Stephen King was shaped in ways that were so profitable profound. He probably doesn't even understand them, but in writing about them, I'm reading this as a Christian, I'm putting two and two together and thinking, man, so his mother loved him, and she always encouraged him to write, and when Stephen King was six years old, he got a really bad illness, and he got his tonsils taken out, and he couldn't do his homework for school, so he said that he spent the majority of that year in bed, and he says he read uh, a ton of comic books. He read every comic book he could get his hands on. Now, I don't know if you know this about Stephen King. He's a very funny human being. Even in his, uh, you know, the, the scary stuff that he writes, there's humor. He's naturally funny. And he used to read comic books, and he used to write. He would copy, he says. He would copy those comic books and add his own descriptions. And then he eventually took one of those stories, and he gave it to his mother, he says. And I want to read for you his memory of, of when his mom read that, what she said. This is what he said. You'll, you'll, you'll pardon the Stephen King illustration. I'm a preacher. I'm desperate for illustrations. He says, eventually I showed one of these copycat hybrids to my mother, and she was charmed. He says, I remember her slightly amazed smile as if she was unable to believe a kid of hers could be so smart. I had never seen that look on her face before, not on my account anyway, and I absolutely loved it. She asked me if I had made the story up myself. And I was forced to admit that I had copied most of it out of a funny book. She seemed disappointed. And that drained away much of my pleasure. At last, she handed back my tablet. And this is what she said. Write one of your own, Stevie, she said. Those funny books are just junk. In fact, in some of them, somebody's always getting somebody else's teeth knocked out. I bet you could do better. Write one of your own. Now, Check out what Stephen King said about that encounter. This is like decades later, he's looking back and remembering his, mother, his mother's gentle correction. He was writing funny stuff about people getting their teeth knocked out. His mother said, you know, Stevie, I think you could do better than that. Why don't you go write one on your own? There's gentle correction. There's encouragement. Listen to what he says. He said, I remember an immense feeling of possibility at the idea. As if I had been ushered into a vast building filled with closed doors and had been given leave to open any of those doors that I wanted. There were more doors than one person could ever open in a lifetime. 
I thought that then, and I still think that. And then he tells the story of eventually he did write a story of his own at six years old. He wrote a story about four magic animals who rode around in an old car helping out little kids. Does that sound like Stephen King to you? This is the guy who wrote the Killer Clown movie, guys. But, but, but something happened that I think led him on that path. Earlier, he's writing funny books about magical animals that go around helping people. Could, he could have been a C.S. Lewis. Who knows? And he says their leader was a large white bunny named Mr. Rattletrick. He got to drive the car. The story was four pages long, uh, laboriously printed in pencil. When I finished it, I gave it to my mother. That's the only one that Stephen King ever cared to please when he was six years old. He said, I gave it to my mother who sat down in the living room, put her pocketbook on the floor beside her and read it all at once. I could tell she liked it, he wrote. She laughed in all the right places, but I couldn't tell that was because she liked me and wanted me to feel good or because it really was good. You didn't copy this one, she asked when, I, when she had finished. I said, no, I had not. She said this. Stevie, that's good enough to be in a book. And Stephen King said this, nothing that anyone has ever said to me since has made me feel any happier. Now, you may think, well, that's it. No, I'm not finished yet. But just think about that. This is Stephen King. <laughs> he has written 63 books. 50 of them were bestsellers. 350 million copies of his books have been sold. He's been a recipient of over 80 awards and nominated for over 100 additional awards. He has published over 200 short stories, and he says nothing that anybody has ever said since has made him happier. Now, you tell me what kind of power that words have, especially when you're young and you can be deeply formed and shaped. Nothing that anybody has ever said since has made him any happier, any happier. But something that did happen in Stephen King's life later made him a lot sadder and ashamed. He says in his biography, um, and I'm going to close with this. He says in his biography that the first bestseller that he ever wrote was in eighth grade. And it was a movie that he saw called The Pit and the Pendulum that he decided to try and kind of copycat it and write a story. And he took it to his middle school. He printed 40 copies, and he only sold about 10 until the end of lunch. After lunch, he sold just about every copy that he had. And he said the money was weighing down his pockets. And he said, man, I'm on cloud nine, and I thought I was in a dream. It was too good to be true. And then he got summoned to the principal's office. <laughs> And he knew that it was too good to be true because there was a lady in there named Miss Hisler. Now, Miss Hisler had been a Sunday school teacher at the Methodist Church and his grade school teacher when he was in fifth and sixth grade. And now she was his middle school teacher. And they called Stevie into the principal's office. And he said that she had wadded up in a, in a, in a row his story and she was brandishing it at him. And she stole him like you would a pet that had peed or pooped on the floor when you're scolding him. And this is what she said. This is what she said to him. She said, Stevie, what I don't understand is why in the world you would write junk and garbage like this in the first place. You're talented. Why do you want to why do you want to waste your abilities on garbage like this? And Stevie said, to her credit, the question, the question was not entirely rhetorical, but I could not answer. I had no answer to give. I was utterly ashamed. He said, I have spent a good many years since, too many, too many, I think, being ashamed of what I write. And he said, Miss Hisler told me I would have to give everyone's money back. He says, I think I was 40 before I realized that almost every writer of fiction and poetry who has ever published a line has been accused by someone of wasting his or her God-given talent. 
If you write or paint or dance or sculpt or sing, I suppose, someone will try to make you feel lousy about it. That's all. I'm not editorializing. I'm just trying to give you the facts as I see them. He says that uh, he originally, he wrote another story eventually called The Invasion of the Star Creatures, and he sold all but four or five of his four dozen copies. He says, I guess that means I won in the end against Miss Hisler, at least in a financial sense, but in my heart, I stayed ashamed. I kept hearing Miss Hisler asking why I wanted to waste my talent, why I wanted to waste my time, why I wanted to write junk. Now listen, you can say whatever you want to about Stephen King and the content of his books and his movies, but I believe that was a turning point in his life. And you know, criticism like that can almost turn you so inward, so callous, so hardened that the rest of your life is a revenge. It's like, I'm gonna show her, I'm gonna teach her. Who knows, man, Stephen King could have been the next C.S. Lewis for all we know. He could have been writing books like Chronicles of Narnia. All I'm saying here is that words matter and that your words are either filled with grace or they're emptied of grace. And you have a godlike power to show and extend grace and this peace or this lack thereof to follow you around wherever you go. And that's especially going to be true right now, not just with the world and of the society, but of the church. When we start reopening things, we're all going to need a lot of this grace that God offers us. And we're going to need to extend that and show that and prove that to other people, uh, ourselves included. So, um, you know, one of the most powerful means of grace that God gives us is communion. Did you know that? God is reminding us of what we so often forget, that our status with him is sealed, it's fixed, it's cemented, it will ever be in danger of being changed or overturned. And that's why God says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, that I died for you, my body was torn for you, my blood was shed for you. So as we as we close out the service, I'd like for us to just prepare our hearts. I want to pause and I want to pray. And then uh, you can get your elements there at the house, the wine or the juice, whatever you're using, the bread, the crackers, whatever it is that you have at hand, uh, you can prepare that for yourself and all the believing members of your family. So let's just pause and pray for a minute, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace and for your love, and for the peace that we have with you. We are no longer an enemy. We are, we are no longer outsiders. We are no longer strangers to your grace. We have become insiders. We are brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. The wall of enmity between us and you has been torn down, and because of that, the wall of opposition between us and every other uh, person in the world, uh, separated by whatever it was that separated us, Lord, has been torn down by the, the blood of Christ. And we celebrate that today, Lord. Help us to just fix our minds and our hearts on you and to remember who Christ is and what he has done on our behalf. We did not earn your favor. We didn't earn your grace. We didn't earn your love. And so there's nothing we can do to forfeit it. All you want us to do is celebrate it, rejoice in it, share it with others, uh, and to delight in your love. Lord. Just like a father wants his son or his daughter to delight and the love and the protection and the freedom that that child has because of the work of the parent. So help us to do that today as we come to the communion table and remember the, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that was broken, that was torn, that was ripped, and that was shed for us. Lord, we don't deserve it, but you delight to do it for us. And we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to turn uh, to a familiar passage in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians, 
chapter 11, that's the place where the Apostle Paul is instructing the church at Corinth. You know, they, they, had, they had had a hard time uh, remembering how to properly celebrate communion. They weren't doing it well. And because they weren't, a lot of them were facing judgment. Some of them were sick. Some of them were dying. And the Apostle Paul says, look, when you come to communion, it's not the Lord's funeral, okay? It's the Lord's communion. It's a celebration of his, of his grace. But we are to do that with, with sobriety. We are, we are to do that with, with seriousness. Because, listen, it's a reminder that how bad off were we? How bad was the human condition? Did we just need a, a little help, a little pick-me-up? No, we were so sinful that Jesus had to come and die. But we are so loved by him. He takes such delight in us that he was glad to do that. And so the Apostle Paul says, look, when believers come, this is only for believers. If you don't know Christ, if you haven't repented of your sin and, and asked Christ to cleanse you, to receive you, if you haven't believed the gospel, this is not for you. Uh, don't receive communion today. Receive Jesus. Repent of your sins and trust him. But this is for a believer who's trusting in the finished work of Jesus alone and needs to be reminded of what that work was. It was Jesus going to the cross, facing the wrath of God on our behalf. So when the Apostle Paul wrote this, uh, this is what he said to us. He says in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. So we're going to do that today. I'm just going to take some unleavened bread here and a cup of juice or wine, whatever we have here. And I'm just going to break this bread. And I'm going to give thanks right now. Lord Jesus, thank you that just like I've taken this bread and I've torn it, I've ripped it in half. Lord, you too have done that to your body. Just like the, the temple curtain, the veil was, was torn in half to signify what your body being torn in half meant. It means we now have complete and unrestricted, unlimited access to you. Uh, we, we are no longer strangers to you. We are in your presence, Lord, where we belong. That's where we belong. We were kicked out of the Garden of Eden because of our sin and our rebellion. But Jesus Christ has gone under the sword. He has faced the wrath of God. He has been slain and slaughtered for us so that we can be welcomed, most welcome back into your presence. And so now, Lord, we thank you for your broken body, for your shed blood, and we take it together. So would you would you do that now? Would you take, and if you, if you have the opportunity to dip this into the wine or the juice, you can do that, and let's celebrate together. Lord, we give you thanks again. Just you know how forgetful we are, how we have gospel amnesia, and we need to taste, we need to touch, we need to smell, we need to handle. We need all of our senses, Lord, to be brought into the recollection and the memory. We are prone to forget, Lord, or we are prone to trivialize the profundity of your gift to us and help us to <clears throat> take this occasion as a means of grace today, Lord. This is you doing just what the Apostle Paul did. This is you giving us more grace. This is you 
reminding us that this is where true peace comes from. And we thank you for it today. We'll celebrate it in the, the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I think what they did in the early church is that they also sang a hymn together. We're going we're, we're to sing it. I, I need to let you know that TJ left Heath. We got a text that his son Heath was bit by a snake. Okay. So we'll be, yeah, please. Well, we, uh, our, our worship leader just got a text that said his son was bitten by a snake. This is Florida, and I'm not sure what kind of snake bit him. Um, don't know how serious this could be, but I just want to pause <clears throat> and pray for, for TJ's son right now. Lord, we pray for, T, for TJ's son. Lord, please be with him, whatever um, kind of snake that is. We don't know, but you know. I pray if, it's, if there's venom involved, Lord, you would just help him to get the treatment that he needs, the emergency treatment, um, get him to the hospital or to a care provider. I pray that it's not serious. Maybe it was a dry bite, even if it is a venomous or poisonous snake. Give TJ peace as he drives that way, help him to stay safe. And we just ask you to, to protect that child, Lord. Yes. Please, please protect this child, yes. Lord. We're so vulnerable. We're a little like that. And, and it just reminds us of the fallen world we live in. Lord, there's poisonous animals. The earth is, is under a curse. And animals don't relate to us the right way. We don't relate to each other the right way. And we long for the new heaven and the new earth to come down from heaven. And where, where there is perfect and enduring peace and there's no longer any semblance or reminder of sin and fallenness or curse. And, uh, but until then, Lord, we're just trusting you. So be with TJ, be with the son, be with Emily, uh, be with that whole family, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I, well, think, we, we, I think we should sing, Tommy. I know that's yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. you don't may, if you want to get off the mic. If it, yeah, or, we're going to sing. Like I'm not going to lead not, you in song because... Uh, you would want that, um, but we are going to sing uh, Amazing Grace together. If you don't have the lyrics, you can Google those. Maybe we will sing the first and the last uh, stanza. Is that what they call it? Of Amazing Grace together, off screen here, and then we'll close out our time together. Chris and Diane are going to have to help me. Here. Yes, we will. All right, let's sing. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Now we'll sing the last stanza. When, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise. Then when we first begun. All right, amen. Well, listen, one final thought, okay? As we do uh, move forward with plans for reopening, you guys received the survey last week. Uh, we didn't know this, but there's a 40-person uh, limit on that. But we want to redo, for those of you that didn't get the chance to fill out the survey, it's important to us. We want to show compassion 
and we want to be as equipped and prepared as we can to know what to expect when we do reopen. I'm still waiting to get word back from Volusia County Schools as to whether or not we'll be able to use the campus at Deltona High or whether we'll have to meet somewhere in public or some other means. So two things. You should have a link to that survey that's been sent out to you. Please use it if you haven't so far. That's, that's critically important information to us. The elders are going to be meeting this week to discuss this. Pray for us. Um, and the other thing is going to be just keep checking back on our website for updates. Of course, we'll send them out as soon as we have them. We're not going to leave you guessing or in the dark as to what regathering will look like or when it will be. We'll provide you with the latest updates that we have. And uh, let's all trust the Lord and ask God to continually give us grace and give us peace. He's got an abundant supply. and We have uh, a desperate need for it. Amen. So grace and peace not only to you, but grace and peace be with you and stay upon you. Um, Just our charge. Amen. Such a you know, reminder, right? Yeah, let's do okay. our charge. Our charge together, and then we'll be finished. Diane, you going to come and help me do this? All right. Um, here's our charge. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent. Have a blessed week.